So today, as we jump into Acts chapter number five, look at verse number 17. What's taking place up to this is the apostles are preaching the message of Jesus. They're healing the sick. They're doing all of these things. But watch what he, watch what happens here in verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison during the night. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So this incredible thing is kind of going on here. You may have missed it because it happened so quickly. The apostles have been preaching and teaching Jesus there in the temple. In the middle of all of this, the Sadducees, this is the ruling class of religious leaders. They're not the majority, but they're the ones through lineage have been passed down and passed down and passed down. So while not being the majority, they're the ones that kind of call the shots. And so the Sadducees come in here, and the Sadducees begin to be jealous. First, they were jealous of Jesus, and now they're not just jealous of Jesus, they're jealous of Jesus' followers, because people are flocking to them, and they're healing the sick, and signs and wonders are being done here among these people. But watch this. During the night, an angel of the Lord, this is verse 19, opened the prison door. So they say, go arrest these men. They are arrested, and then... This angel comes and opens and releases the apostles out of prison. But here, I want you to see, before we even get into this release and all the miracles going on here, God was working through the apostles, was he not? God was doing his work through the teaching of his word, through the witnesses of the resurrection. God was accomplishing what he desired to accomplish. How incredible is that? But the Sadducees, here's the thing with the Sadducees. Do the Sadducees believe in God? Yes or no? If you're not familiar, yes, they do. They are the religious leaders of Israel at the time. Yes, they absolutely believe in God. Do they even believe in the word of God? Yes or no? If you're not familiar, the answer is yes. They do. They were scholars of the Old Testament law. They knew the word of God, especially the Old Testament scriptures, likely better than you or I do. These were men that had studied and studied and studied for years, if not decades, by the time that they ascend to these roles. But what's the Sadducees deal? What's going on within them as the apostles are working through the spirit of God? Verse number 17, filled with what? Jealousy there in verse number 17, filled with jealousy. What was going on with the Sadducees that made them get angry that lives were being changed by the news of Jesus Christ? Isn't that incredible that all of this is going on and there are people that are angry about it? Why? Well, in this situation, it was jealousy. Because understand with me, the Sadducees wanted God to work, but they wanted God to work through them. They wanted God to work through them. So today, I think as we examine this text, we have to begin by asking ourselves this question. How do you respond when God blesses someone else's work? How do you respond when God blesses someone else's work? 
You see, oftentimes we want and we say, God, would you just move? God, would you just use me? God, would you just help me to be able to? And those are requests that we ought to pray, I believe. But at the same time, when God chooses to answer our prayer for his work in the world, and he uses the person beside us instead of us, what happens inside of us? Oftentimes, I think what takes place is that we begin to look around and say, what am I doing wrong? And so we maybe get into the point of self-depreciation. We say, God, I must be a failure because I'm not seeing the fruit that someone else is. Or the other extreme is we say, oh, man, what's going on? Why are they seeing this? And we begin to become accusative or begin to become jealous of what's taking place. And that's what the Sadducees do here to the apostles. They look at these men that are leading people to Jesus and that are growing through their teachings. And they say, but wait a second, we've been here for a long time and God's not using us this way. This isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't just. But today, would you continue to pray for the movement of God if he chooses not to do it through your evangelism? Would you continue to pray for a movement of God if he decides not to do it through your church? If the church across town is reaching people for Jesus and making disciples, do we celebrate with them? Or do we become defensive and jealous and envious of these things? What about your denomination? Today, um, most of you are aware of this. Sorry if you're not. You're sitting within a Baptist church. But what if God uses a Bible church or a non-denominational church that preaches the gospel of Jesus And people are coming to Jesus, and it's not even within our network and our family of churches. How do we begin to perceive those things? You know what our response ought to be? Praise God. Praise God. Because we are a Baptist church, and I love being a Baptist church. I was Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead, okay? Understand me. I'm cool with it. But... If God has to work through the means that we have subscribed, all of a sudden we are putting ourselves as God and he is not. And so when God chooses to work, God can work whoever, through whoever he wants to work through. Listen, God used a mule in the Old Testament to speak to a prophet. If he can use that, he can use anything and anyone. Okay? And so it's not our place to say, God, use me and me alone. We rejoice regardless as long as the word of God is being preached, the gospel of Jesus is going out, and disciples are being made. We rejoice with the movement of God. And so what happens now? They are arrested, the apostles are. They're put into prison. And then all of a sudden, during the night, an angel opens the prison doors. Not the first time you're going to see this in the book of Acts. I'm sorry, it is the first time, but not the last time. He comes in and he says, go and stand in the temple. Speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And so at dawn, they're at the temple preaching and teaching. So can you just imagine being the Sadducees? Like Monday night comes to a close and you're like, okay, well, we put those guys in prison. We don't have to worry about them for a little while. We'll deal with it tomorrow. And then you get into the office or the temple the next day. And as you come in, what's this crowd? What's going on here? What's all the hubbub? And you see the apostles doing it again. Are you kidding me? Didn't we? What's happening here? Watch what happens. Verse number uh, at the middle of verse number 21. When the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council. 
All the Senate of the people of Israel sent to the prison to have them brought. So they don't actually see them in the temple. What's going on is they're gathering um, here in this group that we have come to know as the Sanhedrin. These are the religious leaders of Israel from different um, sects of the nation. Well, the officers now have been called on to go get the prisoners. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. And so they come back to this group. And imagine being these guards and you're like, oh, man. Oh, man. They're not going to like this. You ever had bad news that you just didn't want to deliver? <laughs> they come in and they said, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So they go to the guards. The guards are standing here. and They're like, hey, how was the night shift? Ah, there's nothing happened. Uh, really, really slow. Hey, we need the prisoners. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Open the doors. A prisoner, come on out. Prisoner, come around the corner, and there's no one there. There's no holes, there's no evidence, there's no trail, there's no nothing. And then all of a sudden, what happens? When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, so just imagine this playing out. They're confused, or where are these men? And then a messenger comes in and says, look, the men you sent to prison, they're standing in the temple. They're teaching the people. And I love this, verse 26, when the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. <laughs> so these are the officials now, and they come in and they said, hey, can you guys come with us? <laughs> they weren't willing to arrest them again with this crowd because they, they had an understanding of what would happen if they did. And so the Sanhedrin now, this group of religious leaders, they are just stunned at what's taking place. But can I kind of pose a question to you this morning, along with the one that we've already looked at? What good is it to work against God? What good is it to work against God? Can I just this morning really encourage you, don't waste your life telling God no. Don't waste your life telling God no. Don't, don't let days turn into weeks, turn into months, where God's just pressing on your heart. Maybe it's to share the gospel with your neighbor. And you just say, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Great. You know, I've never lived in a tomorrow. I've only ever lived in today. The same is true for you. Don't waste your life telling God no. Maybe there's the person across the street that, man, you just can't stand that guy because back in 87, they did blank. I don't know. But man, like we hear those stories all the time. Or sometimes we're guilty of it. And what do we do with that? We allow the, the, the hours of frustration to become the days of frustration. And not just frustration, but eventually becomes what? Disobedience to the Spirit of God. And then those days become weeks. And those weeks become months. And those months become years. Don't let this happen because what we're seeing right now is the Sanhedrin who has spent their life pretending they're following God all the while resisting the work that he was trying to do. And so what do we see? Today, you and I, we must obey every leading of the Holy Spirit. Understand this, you can't control the results of the Spirit, but you can't obey the leading of the Spirit of God. You can't say what's going to happen when you follow the Spirit of God, but you can't say, I'm going to follow the Spirit of God. That's well within your control or mine. You see, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Paul writes to us and he says this, if you want to memorize a scripture verse today, if, you, if that's a practice you've been out of for a while, I'll give you one that you can memorize today. Do not quench the spirit. 
Do not quench the spirit. That word quench, it's speaking of uh, putting out a fire, putting out uh, something that is blazing and that is burning. When the spirit of God is moving within your life, when the spirit of God is compelling you to obey, to follow after him, can I tell you this? The worst thing you can do, grab a bucket of water and pour it out, right? And say, God, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But understand this. If you say no, but God says yes, first of all, good luck. Second of all, you're going to be frustrated. And if you spend your life just soaking the wood that God wants to burn within you, don't be surprised when God lights the fire in someone else. If your wood is wet, don't be surprised when God lights the fire in someone else. You see, we spend all this time saying, oh, God, that's inconvenient. Oh, God, I'm, uh, should I do this or not? And we call it discerning the will of God sometimes. So we spiritualize our, like, delayed obedience. Um, don't be surprised when God says, okay, I'm going to use them instead. So you want to see your neighbor come to Jesus? Have you given them the gospel? Have you told them about him? Understand this. God's going to accomplish his mission. God's going to accomplish his mission. He's going to do what he desires to do. But I think we all want to be involved in that process, don't we? And so what does that mean for us? It means we see these Sadducees and we say, I want nothing to do with the way they are behaving, but give me this method and this obedience of these apostles. And so what happens? They call up the apostles back in. Watch this as we continue on. Verse number 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you have intended to bring this man, speaking of Jesus, blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so what's happening here? They come in and they say, hey, guys, we just told you not to preach Jesus. We just had this conversation. You ever do that? Like if you're a parent, you ever have to do that with your kids? You're like... Didn't we just have this conversation? Why does your brother have a black eye? Didn't we just tell you? Stop punching each other. But here the the apostles, the leaders come to them and say, didn't we just tell you not to preach Jesus? What are you doing? But at the end of the day, what we kind of understand as we get into this is the council had an authority issue. These are authorities with an authority issue. Because they wanted God to follow their plan instead of asking God for his plans. So what are they doing? They're saying, God, we made a plan. Can you do this for us? We really like this plan. This involves us making decisions and us being able to be in God. Bless this plan. And what happens when God says, that's not my plan. That's not what I called you to do. That's what I asked you to do. But in our lives, oftentimes, we want to take, we want to write the script for our lives, and we want to slide it across the table to God and say, all right, here's my final offer. And God says, 
What is this? I don't need that. You see, God doesn't want a gift certificate of our lives. God desires a blank check because our lives are not our own. They belong to him in the first place. But we say, God, I'll do this very specific thing if you call me to that. And when God says, that's not what I'm calling you to, be like, oh, guess God didn't want to use me. No, you didn't desire to be used by God. You wanted God to do it the way that you had mapped it out. And none of us, none of us love the idea of authority, right? How many of you hear authority and you're just like, warms my heart? Oh, none of you. Okay. All right. Amazing. But at the same time, we have to understand that authority is God-given. Authority is God-given. You see, he placed parents in the home. He placed apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, according to the book of Ephesians, in the church for the purpose of equipping the saints. And authority is something built into God's plan for the world. And at the end of the day, authority is God accountable. And so here we find these men who are God accountable in disobeying God. And so we understand that when we find ourselves with authorities who desire one thing or another contrary to the word of God, that we are called to obey God rather than men. And so what takes place here? The apostles, they come to understand that they are working, these men are working against God. And they knew they had to obey God. And so what is their response? Verse number 29, Peter stands up, spokesman of the apostles, and he says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit to God, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so they say, we, we have to obey God. We have to obey God. I just imagine Peter sitting here going, guys, I have been given one job and I'm going to do it. Because if you go back to Acts chapter number one, the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus. And he says, hey, listen, guys, you will be, what's the word there? Witnesses. Witnesses. So what's Peter's job? It's to be a witness. And what does he say here? He says, listen, this is the job that I've been given to do. We are witnesses. Verse 32. I don't have a lot of jobs. I got one. It's to be a witness, he says. And so he says, listen, uh, it's all I know to do. It's all I know to do. He says, I'm a witness of what? Of Jesus. And he says, this man, he is leader. So he says, stand here, Juno, respectfully. You are not. Jesus is. And Savior. He says, this Savior has granted us two things. Two things, he says. He says, repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And I love these two things that he says the Savior has come to give us. First, repentance. Repentance is, is a theological sounding word. It simply means this. It means to change your mind and to turn from one degree or one direction of movement and to go another. And so if you're walking this path and we say, oh, that's not the right way. We turn around and we go another one. That's repentance in its most simple forms. So he's speaking here to Israel. He's speaking here to these Jewish leaders. He's speaking to anyone who will listen. And he says, 
you're following the wrong thing. You see, the religion of the day had metamorphosized, it had transformed, it had really deteriorated into this traditionalism. We're doing the thing because we were told we ought to do it. And so they're continuing in this path, and he says, stop, 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 stop. Turn around, go back to the thing that you're walking away from. And so these apostles are saying, we're witnesses, we're calling for repentance, We're calling for you to change your mind. And today, maybe you're in here and you need to repent. Maybe you need to repent of your sin in the first place and trust Jesus. You say, I'm good enough that I can get to God on my own. You say, God, I don't even know if you're really out there, but you say, God, any of these number of things. And maybe today's the day that God's calling you to repent and to say, I I give up. I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to follow after him. It doesn't mean you understand everything. It doesn't mean you have your act all together. It means what? It means you're changing your mind. And you say, okay, Jesus, I'm in. I'm following you. And when we repent, when we turn around, what does God give us? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. You see, all of us were born into sin. We spend years of our lives chasing sin, chasing these other things, trying to be good without God. And then God says, hey, turn around. And you know what happens when when we actually hear God say, turn around, and we say, okay, I'm turning around. What does he do with all the stuff that happens up until that point, as well as the stuff that happens after it? Does he say, hey, man, I got a list of things that you got to atone for. Hey, I'm calling you to account. Is that what he does when we repent? What does he do? He takes that sin and he separates it from us as far as the east is from the west. They never meet. They never touch. There's no point at which they intersect. And he takes that sin because of the gift of Jesus Christ and he removes it from us, forgives it. How incredible. And so what we find is that we find we need to repent and we need forgiveness. And Peter says, you can have it through Jesus. But really, what do we find the apostles doing here? We find the apostles are much more concerned about obeying God and then about the decisions of others. They're much more concerned about obeying God than about the decisions of others. Can I tell you this? You want to live a successful Christian life? You want to endure for a long time within your faith? Do you want to keep going in a way that you're growing in your knowledge and understanding of the word? You're fruitful, like that olive tree that we read about earlier. Worry more about obeying God than the decisions of others. Worry more about obeying God than about the decisions of others. Because at the end of the day, do you know who you're going to stand up and give an account for? Yourself. The way that you raised your family, the way that you treated your spouse, the way that you interacted with members of your church, the way that you interacted with coworkers in the workplace, the way that you, you don't give an account for how everybody else lives their lives. You give an account for how you choose to live your life. But so often we want to worry about, well, this person and that person, the other, can I tell you a little secret? God knows God knows. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't doze off for a little while and say, oh, how did I miss that? No. Worry more about obeying God than about the decisions of others. 
Obviously, the uh, religious leaders were very mature about all of this, and they heard this, and they accepted this news, right? Is that what we're expecting here? They just jumped in and said, okay, Peter, that sounds like a good idea. No. <laughs> no, even this is your first time in church in your life, you hear this and you're going, I don't, I don't think so. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. <laughs> sound like really just... I don't even know what to say about these guys. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. This guy's a fascinating, a fascinating man, Gamaliel. Uh, because all of these leaders are they're they're just their jealousy, they just they're unhinged now. Um, they view the people of Israel as their servants. They belong to us. They, we don't need God's involvement. He told us to do it, and so we're gonna do it. But we find this man named Gamaliel, and, and what does he say? He's kind of an unlikely ally and a voice of reason. He stands up, and he, he's a teacher, we learn in verse 34, of the law held in honor by all the people. He stood up, and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he says, hey, remove these men, and they do so. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days... Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, this is separate from Judas the follower of Jesus, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking of uh, this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Watch this. Watch this last phrase he says. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel knows what's going on. Gamaliel is this really, really fascinating, um, respected Jewish leader. Gamaliel, um, first of all, I want to point this out. In verse 34, it says, but a, what? what's that word there? But a, this is verse 34, but a Pharisee. And he's standing in the middle of this room that is, uh, the ones in charge are, if you go back to verse 17, you see the high priests, that is the party of the Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees, um, we'll just call them cats and dogs. Um, they don't get along well. They have different views of how to interpret the Bible, um, and they kind of just agreed to disagree, and they function as leaders within Israel. And so the Sanhedrin is made up of a lot of, a lot of Sadducees and some Pharisees. Gamaliel is one of these Pharisees. More, much more, um, what we'd say, conservative in his theology. He believes in the, the resurrection, the literal resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees say, no, that's not happening. Gamaliel here as a Pharisee, he's actually even the teacher of a man that we come to know as Paul the Apostle, the one who wrote about 13 books of the New Testament. Paul, Gamaliel was the one who taught him the scripture. Paul himself says this, Acts chapter number 22. And so, in fact, at this time, as Gamaliel is speaking, it's possible that Saul or Paul later is in the room as this is going on. It's distinct possibility. Some scholars even say it's likely that Saul was in the room as this conversation's happening. 
Gamaliel is his teacher, is his rabbi. And in fact, most teachers were called rabbi so-and-so, my teacher, which means my teacher, blank. But Gamaliel is interesting in that we have documentation of ancient literature where Gamaliel is called Rabban Gamaliel, which means our teacher Gamaliel, which means what? means he's not just my teacher and he's not just, this guy's big time. He's influential. In this era, the best known Jewish uh, teacher and theologian that we have extra biblical evidence of, Gamaliel. So this guy is brilliant as he's saying these things. And what does he say? He says, hey, you guys remember these other messiahs? You guys remember these other people that were called by God to do this or that? They got up and they said, God's doing this. He speaks of a man named Judas. He says he had 400 men and he claimed to be somebody. Um, this is maybe today, if you've been around long enough, this would maybe be the equivalent of like a first century David Koresh, kind of a cult leader. Uh, news goes on for a decade, fizzled out with nothing left except newspaper clippings and a Wikipedia article, David Koresh. That's kind of what's happening. He says, ah, oh, Theodos, remember Theodos? Yeah, that guy, he stirred up. Oh yeah, I remember Theodos. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Why? Because the whole thing just fell to nothing. Theodos died, and so did the rest of the movement. Judas now is a Galilean. Jew, Judas told Jews, he said, don't register for the census. Disobey Rome. And even certain leaders, when they went against Judas's teaching and they registered for the census and went along with Roman authority, um, he would go, he would literally terrorize their homes, killing cattle, burning buildings, he and his followers, these extremists, these radicals. He led a rebellion against Rome. Many thought the Messiah, who Jesus would later come to be, the Christ, right? He was forever, but we'll get into that it's a different topic. But what we see is this man claiming to be the Messiah, God's anointed one. He, he went out and some believed him. They said, oh, he's fighting against Rome. This must be the Christ that we've been waiting for. And if they didn't get in line with him, he terrorized them. But then Judas died and the movement faltered. As these men are sitting here having this conversation, they had to be remembering that Jesus also died. And many of these men, even at this time, not only had Jesus died, but they chose to believe, since they had not seen him themselves, that he was still dead. And so what does Gamaliel say? He says, if this movement is coming from men, leave it alone. It's not worth wasting our time on. Because if men have created this idea, it's going to fail. But if this movement comes from God, there's nothing you or I could do to stop it. We can't get up and oppose this thing. It's going to take place regardless of what we want to do. And in fact, he gives this really strong warning. You might even be found opposing God. See, Gamaliel here, he, God, this is, I think this is recorded and included here. This is about the smartest thing I've ever heard a Pharisee or read about a Pharisee saying, right? It's the most godly thing ever to come out of a Pharisee's mouth in the scriptures. And you see Gamaliel sitting around, he's going, guys, be careful about telling others what God is telling them to do. And so what do the men do? They hear Gamaliel, they hear these strong words. So they took his advice. And in verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council. What are the, opposed, uh, the apostles doing as they leave the presence of the council? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So here's what's going on. The apostles, they're beaten. They said, stop doing this. And they send them out. What's the response to the beating? What's the response to the beating? They leave that place doing what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Do you rejoice in opposition? Probably say, like, no, because I don't have that kind of mental illness. No. That's not, that's sick. That's gross. No. I don't want to suffer. I want good and comfort. The apostles here, they leave and they're rejoicing. Why? Because they believe that was affirmation. They were counted worthy to suffer with Jesus. Can I remind you, we follow a suffering Savior. Uh, the guy that we worship was murdered publicly. So why should we expect anything different? But instead, they said that they were counted worthy to suffer. And so they taught and they preached Jesus. Where? Well, they went out to the temple publicly, corporately. They weren't afraid to take Jesus to the people. But not only that, then we see from house to house, privately, they're going in and they're gathering in these smaller groups, these smaller house churches, and they're getting together and they're talking about Jesus They're continuing to develop and to build these dynamics within the church where they're relating to one another and maturing in their faith. So today, as we look at all of this passage, as we look at all of these verses here in Acts chapter number five, if I could just leave you with two words, this is what I got to say to you. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. That word preach, sometimes it gets interpreted to be like a thing I'm doing right now. And sure, that's one aspect of preaching. But you know, preaching is simply communicating a message. It's declaring something that you know to be true. It's taking what you have been given and being a witness and a messenger of it. So this morning, my challenge to you is this. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. We live in a world where people just love to preach their opinions, or their point of view, or their perspectives. What would happen if a body of believers, or of Christians in general, were to say, hey, we, we have one message, we're one message group, Jesus. Jesus. And listen to me, Jesus applies to a lot of different things in our culture today. Jesus applies to a lot of the things that we see going on in this world. But you know what needs to happen is we need to Preach Jesus. See, the world is not in the shape that it's in, and our, our, our communities and our cultures aren't in the ways that they are because there's not a cure for it. It's because we left the cure sitting in the bottle. We left the cure sitting on the shelf. Jesus is the answer for the heartbreaks that you and I endure. Jesus is the answer for the communities that are struggling and in ruins. Jesus is the answer. I know it sounds cliche, but here's the thing. It's true. So you want to do what's good for your church? You want to do do what's good for your family? You want to do what's good for your community? Preach Jesus. 
Preach Jesus. Maybe you're in this room today and, and you say, you know, hey, Pastor Nate, I, don't even, I haven't even believed in Jesus. Can I tell you this today? The response that I encourage you to have, repent and believe. Get that forgiveness of your sins. Turn away from whatever it is you're chasing, whatever your God is, whatever it is that you're following after. And turn to Jesus. Maybe today in this room, as we were talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees, you said, oh man, I saw a lot more of myself in that than I'd like. What are the Pharisees and Sadducees called to do here? They're called to humble themselves. They're called to turn away from that behavior. You see what they did to Peter? They said, oh, you're trying to accuse us of killing Jesus. And Peter's like, yeah. But they didn't want to hear it. They knew it was true. They knew they were at least responsible for that. But they were so arrogant that they said, no, 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 no. We don't want anything to do with this. Maybe today you're in here. And your response needs to be like the response of the apostles. Maybe you're working through difficult times, difficult seasons. You say, I feel just the opposition, whether it's internal or external. The enemy's fighting me. Maybe it's circumstantial, not an individual or even a group. It's just, uh, the enemy's fighting me. Can I tell you today? Rejoice in your hardship. Rejoice in your hardship. You see, you want to live a life without friction? That's a life without movement. That's a life without growth. All of those things involve some friction, and so there will be difficult days in following Jesus. There will be difficult days in following Jesus. That doesn't mean we stop doing it. It means that we rejoice, saying, he's counting me worthy to allow me to endure these difficulties for the sake of his name.